there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. 2020 is a big year in politics here in the U.S. So if you're interested in learning how to influence public opinion, whether as part of a political campaign, corporate social impact, or brand positioning, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a partner at GMMB, one of the leading mission-focused or I should say mission-oriented, progressive advertising and public relations agencies here in the U.S. But before I introduce you to Susan Feeney, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that drops on Mondays and gives you a one-stop shop place to find out more about the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Otherwise, you just have to wait until when you signed up for each episode, that announcement that flashes on your phone when you wake up in the morning. Then it's just a surprise. This gives you so you can plan your week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my political junkies, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Susan Feeney, a partner at GMMB who also leads the agency's Seattle office, overseeing an innovative team supporting a diverse list of national, Bay Area, and global clients. Susan's primary focus is on strategic communications and advocacy around education here and abroad, ed tech, known as educational technology, public policy, public health, and enhancing the quality of life in the Intermountain West. Some of Susan's biggest clients include the Gates Foundation, the Lore Foundation, Omidyar Network, National Academy Foundation, the Institute of International Education, the Startup Handshake, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC. Susan is a storyteller, a writer, and an expert in public positioning, advocacy, leveraging digital content, media relations, and public speaking training. She joined GMMB 10 years ago after an award-winning career in journalism that included nearly a decade as senior editor of NPR's All Things Considered and Morning Edition and many years covering the White House and national politics for the Dallas Morning News and the Times-Picayune newspapers. Susan, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? (laughs) I am so caffeinated and ready to go. What a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, likewise. I am so excited to speak with you because in kind of many ways, our careers do have some parallel tracks. They do. I'm excited to kind of hear how you've done what you've done and what your experiences have been transitioning from journalism into what you're doing now, which we'll get into a little bit later. We are both proof that there's life after journalism. Amen. So before we dig into what you did as a journalist and what you do now at GMMB, I thought it might be helpful if you were to give our listeners a quick 101 on what makes GMMB different from other 
what are known as kind of white shoe public relations firms, firms like Fleischman Hillard, Edelman, Weber Shandwick, Hill and Knowlton. Because honestly, when I first left journalism about a dozen years ago, I didn't realize firms like GMMB and where I went to work, MR Strategic Services even existed. You know what? I didn't know either. And you think when you're a journalist, you know everything, and it turns out you don't, <laughs> which is funny. You think you do. GMMB has been around for 35 years. What makes it different? It was founded on this principle of could you take tactics, advertising, strategic thinking that you apply to political campaigns and put them to work for social good. Initially, hey, guess what? You have odd years, even years. You need something to do when there aren't campaigns. But GMB was really a pioneer in this avenue. It is the heart and soul of the firm. We might be better known for political campaigns, presidential campaigns that we've done. But truthfully, more of our work is working with virtually all of the major leading philanthropic forces in the country. So that's what makes it different. And also that it's a full service firm. So we do production, we do advertising, we do digital, we do marketing, as well as PR. We do spokesperson training. So we're really a full service firm. Fantastic. And that is not to say that those other firms I alluded to, the Fleischmann, Hillards, and Edelman, don't work with philanthropic clients or some of those, but they also work with other, whether it be governments abroad or industries that are not necessarily mission-driven in the sense of GMMB. That's right. It's our bread and butter. But I also want to be clear that we do work with companies for profits on the kind of work that they do that is a driving force for good, right? Melinda Gates always says of the biggest problems in the world, none of them will get solved by philanthropy or by government alone. We need all of those forces working together. So I'll give you an example. We have done work with AT&T on its mentoring work. Johnson and Johnson on the work that they do to help maternal and child health in impoverished regions around the world. Now in EdTech and one of the clients I work with, Omidyar Network, and also Bridge International Academies, they believe in the ability of for-profit startups to help solve some of the most stubborn problems in the world. And one, in that case of Bridge, are super, super, super low-cost private schools, the lowest-income neighborhoods in the world where the families come together. It literally is a company and not a charity. Nice. Thank you so much. That's a really important point. Another kind of little bit of housekeeping that I thought could be useful for our listeners just to kind of set the stage so we all are starting from the same point because we may have some listeners who are not so familiar with what Stratcom, with what strategic communications really is because there are a lot of moving pieces that are involved with building a strategic communications plan. Would you maybe break out some of the various tactics that exist within that framework. 
the way to think about strategic communications is that we live in a message-filled, noisy, crowded world, and you're really just helping people tell their story for a purpose. You're helping them break through. Their purpose might be they need to fundraise, they need more partners to solve a really stubborn social issue. So you're trying to marshal all of the tactics and forces to help them move the needle, as it were, to their particular goal. Now, that might be everything from helping them draft a narrative of who they are, might help them rebrand so people understand where they're from and what their purpose is. It might be helping them do video or advertising. You might be training all of their staff on message training so that they can go out and be better advocates. You might do some earned media, which is a term I didn't know when I was in the media, which is pitching to journalists and trying to get people to write about their story. It is a whole package of things, tools, like in a big old basket, you are trying to decide how to deploy. Increasingly, it involves digital communications. It involves digital social media advertising, ways in which to help people drive their story to either make change, help them raise money, get a piece of legislation passed. There's a lot of different end objectives, and it's kind of building all of the tactics that helps the world better understand who they are. And for us at GMB, one of our calling cards is behavior change, trying to change the way the world is for the better. Oh, what a fantastic overview. Thank you so much. And the reason that I asked you that is that before I got into that world, I thought it was media relations that you referenced. I thought it was all the people who called me all the time pitching stories. Exactly. Uh, There's a famous story in our family. So when I was the editor of All Things Considered, people would call and pitch me like on deadline when the show was live. Not good. And so sometimes I had to hang up on people. And I'm a really nice person. I don't normally hang up on people. And at that time, my husband called and said, hey, my colleague, he was at a different firm in those days, said, my colleague was trying to call you. And I'm like, oh, my God, is that the woman I hung up on today? (laughs) And he said, no, honey, it's the woman you hung up on yesterday. So anyway, that's what I thought communications was. People who interrupted me during the show, I've learned a lot. Absolutely. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you really focus your work, Susan, on the communications and advocacy work in the fields of education, ed tech, and public health. Is that right? Yeah, it's a little broader because to be honest, the mix of my clients, while there are sort of what we consider anchor clients, it evolves all the time. And for me, that's what keeps it interesting. But really, global issues, education, public health. Yeah, that's the best way to define it. It gets a little varied from time to time. Cool. So let's dig into one of the engagements that you've had. And I know that you worked with an ed tech company called Handshake. It's a San Francisco. It's a startup and it's a career-based platform for college students to help them connect with potential employers. Right. What did GMMB, what did you and your team do for Handshake? I'm just thrilled to talk about that because they are an amazing organization and they are an example that we were mentioning of a for-profit 
They're a startup started by a couple of guys who were in college in rural Michigan. And guess what? All of the big tech companies in the world, they didn't come knocking on their door to recruit. So they had a personal problem, right? Hey, who is going to come and recruit us? We're awesome. We're engineers. We're smart economists, all that sort of thing. So they built a really beautiful platform where universities sign up and students can sign up online, put their resumes in there. The recruiters can come right there online and have the pick of all of these amazing students all across the country and with a whole new efficiency. So let's say I don't know, I'm GE and I'm supporting the Seattle Opera, but they need an engineer. So I got to find an engineer with some interest in opera. Like it's just an amazing platform and it has had explosive growth. So it was well on its way when they reached out to us because they were good at what they were doing. They were good at talking to universities, but they didn't really exist in the education space in the universe. So education reporters, education policymakers were not really plugged into why this was needed, why it was good. And this is super important. Handshake is taking all of the steps possible to protect student privacy. So they have a lot of data. Students can upload their grades. They can put all of these things that they want employers to see, but nobody wants to be hacked. So we helped Handshake talk about all the work they have done to protect privacy in an era where people are super concerned about that. And we helped them get better known and to be able to tell their story in the education space so that they were sort of aware of what was happening and that Handshake would find more partners who had a common interest. Gotcha. Great. One side note to our listeners, you may have heard there was some, it sounded like, I don't know, rattling in Susan's voice when she was responding to my last question. She lives right near the water, probably right on the water. And she thinks that it's the boats that are going by her house that are causing that. So apologies. It comes and goes and there's nothing that we can do about it. So please bear with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for noting that. Yeah, absolutely. So we should say that the services that you provided fall into the buckets of positioning and messaging, Mm -hmm. earned media, which you mentioned. And the reason that I think it's called earned media is because you earned it by the sweat of your brow, by pitching all those different news organizations, and then social strategy. What did you mean by social strategy? What was that piece? And how did you measure the success of the engagement, Susan? So social strategy was to help them not just use social media platforms, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, but to target the right audiences for that. One of the great advantages of digital advertising and digital communications is you don't have to talk to the entire universe. You can narrow down that audience that you want to have a conversation with. And we worked with them a little bit about that in some social campaigns to talk to people about, hi, like whenever there was a new offering on their platform, they want people to know about it. Whenever they had major milestones they were trying to communicate, we helped them communicate with the right people. Gotcha. That's really helpful. Thank you. And what about the effect of the work that you did, the impact? 
how did you quantify? How were you able to demonstrate and illustrate to Handshake that the engagement was worth the money that they spent? Yeah, this is worth talking about too, because in this age, we think about whether it's Handshake or whether it's a nonprofit, people invest money that could very easily be put into something else. If you're a small nonprofit, what you put into communications, you really want to see those returns. So we live in a time where everything is tracked and quantified and quantifiable for two reasons. One, when you do it along the way, if something's not working, you want to know and you want to adjust. So say you're running three different posts with some boost, some buy behind them. And people are really, really clicking on one of them, but not the other two. So guess what? You're going to shift your effort to the one that works and is more successful with communicating with people. So we do it to calibrate and improve as we go. But we also want to be able to look at the end. What did we do right? What did we do wrong? Was it worth it? Should we try something else with you the next time if that was a tactic that didn't live up to our expectations? We own it. We all want to know whether things are successful or they're not because it helps us be better in the future. Definitely. And so what were you able to play back to Handshake that said, yeah, this was this was definitely a campaign that was well run. Say specifically on that kind of campaign, you are tracking how many people clicked on those social posts and when they did, what was their engagement? If you were connecting people with their website, for example, how long did people stay on the website? What did they click on there? So you're tracking that activity in earned media that's pretty obvious, placement of stories. Who wrote about Handshake? How many people saw those stories? What happened after the story? So you're always trying to report back and track basically the impact of the work that you do. What are conferences that you helped people get a speaking position at? How big were those audiences and what happened after? Wonderful. You've also worked on building issue-focused campaigns. Could you give us an example of one and maybe some of the moving pieces that were involved in developing that kind of campaign? Oh, yeah. I'll give you an example of one of my favorites. So I mentioned we worked with Bridge International Academies. They are based in uh, Nairobi and they have schools in, oh my gosh, Uganda, Kenya, Nigeria, and many countries in the poorest, poorest communities. So what was happening is that Bridge is not a nonprofit. It is a startup. It's an eight, nine-year-old startup now that allows communities, some of the poorest people in the world, they pay a small amount of money for schools that they then have say about how they're run, about who gets hired, and their schools greatly outperform the public or government schools in many, many places in the world. So they came under quite a bit of international criticism wrongly because some of their investors are, this will sound like a familiar list of our clients, Bill Gates, Piero Midyar, Mark Zuckerberg. And the critics would say the people who are against innovation in schools and learning, oh my, they're trying to get rich off of the poorest families in the world. And that could not be more wrong. So the campaign that we worked with them very closely to develop, we went to villages in Uganda 
and in Nairobi. And we talked to families and we asked them, given your limited income in the world, why do you do this? Why do you choose to go to this low-cost private school? You can still see their stories and these videos on YouTube if you want to look. The campaign is MyBridge, and it's a hashtag and a campaign that they still use, which we're really happy about. But we were able to tell the stories of the people who love these schools and believe in them when highfalutin policy people in London were trashing them. We thought, no, we're going to go talk about and tell the real story of the difference they've made in these students' lives and the high schools they've gone on to. It's just an amazing, really, really touching story. But getting in there and raising their voices, no one was hearing from them. And so we were really delighted to do that. Wonderful. And As I'm listening to you, Susan, what really strikes me is the fact that unlike your time as a journalist, you had pretty set hours now working at GMMB. The day probably doesn't have so many curveballs coming to you at 2 (laughs) a.m. or 4 a.m. Well, that was an NPR thing for sure. Yeah, there's fewer curveballs. But I would say, and I tell this to our teams a lot, we work with some really amazing philanthropists and they didn't get to this place in life and philanthropy by not having really high standards. And you would be surprised the number of things that have to happen urgently. Like we are very big on the highest quality of work. But things come up still, but not at the pace when I was the senior editor of Morning Edition, where many nights you get called in the middle of the night with breaking news. I think it's better, much better. But you'd be surprised. There's a fair amount of things where we find ourselves evenings, weekends. We're in the business of client services. And when things have to be done, we have to do them. Okay. That's a really important point. So why did you decide to leave journalism. And what do you think, in hindsight, were some of the biggest adjustments for you, Susan? I decided to leave journalism in part because I was a mom. So I think this is where I talk about your career being in chapters and the thing when you graduate from college that you think you're going to do. I thought that my career was a perfectly straight line. I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be a political journalist. I wanted to cover the White House, all that. And then I did all of that. And what happened was in the year 2000, I was a political reporter for the Dallas Morning News. And I had a two-year-old, not just during the New Hampshire primary, his second birthday, he's 21, by the way, his second birthday was the day of the New Hampshire primary. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Every mom cringes. So my employer at the time was not particularly interested in having me not work on his birthday, of course, but I didn't even have the ability, given the crux of a presidential campaign, to go home in a long stretch of time around that period of time. We solved the problem as a family. We didn't tell him it was his birthday. We actually, when he graduated from high school, told him we lied to him about his second birthday and told him to work it out in therapy. Uh, We told him his birthday was on Saturday when I got home. Isn't that crazy, right? That was so clever of you. 
Oh, kind of. But I felt bad. I cried. So it made me cry not to be with him. And I whined to all of my women friends. And it was Mara Eliasson, a friend at NPR and still who said, hey, I think we're doing some hiring. I don't know, whatever that is. So that's when I made the transition from reporter to editor. That's the chapter, the first chapter for me. I always wanted to be a reporter. I never wanted to be an editor or a manager. I avoided it like the plague. So NPR was a great improvement for me because I wasn't out on the road not seeing my two-year-old. But eventually, that was really challenging too. I felt to be a good parent and be a journalist. That's when I knew I needed to make another adjustment. And I felt strongly that adjustment was going to be out of journalism. I don't know why I was heading toward 50. I thought, "Mm, I have another career in me. I started a very small nonprofit around the end of my days at NPR. It was at the time of Hurricane Katrina. So I was a reporter in New Orleans for a long time. And then I was at NPR when Katrina hit. Everything I knew about the Ninth Ward and New Orleans came to bear for our coverage at NPR. So I started a little nonprofit. We raised quite a bit of money for the families of journalists during Katrina. Turns out reporters really suck at being victims because they just keep working. And you know what? We needed them to keep working in New Orleans because that's how the whole world knew what was going on. And even national media was taking cues from them. So that experience of building this nonprofit sort of lit a fire, an entrepreneurial fire, something that was more cause-related. So then I started just asking everybody I knew what they did and how they did it and did kind of a big survey of other jobs. But the very first person was Frank Greer, the founder of GMMB. I had known him and Jim Margolis, both GMMB founding partners, when I was a political reporter. And at that time, they weren't really hiring. I kept talking to more and more people, but came back to GMMB because I found it to be a place where I could do really meaningful work. It's not unlike being a reporter because it's different stuff flying around every day, which turns out to be my speed and my passion. And so that transition was frightening and exciting because I really didn't know what they did. But luckily, they believed I had transferable skills. Yes. And I have no doubt so many of them came to bear. I have to tell you, I'm full confession, as I mentioned, I also moved from journalism into a similar firm, MR Strategic Services. And unlike you, Susan, I did not have any management experience. And I did not realize how valuable that would be because I then accepted a job as senior vice president at MNR, in which I was managing the communications team and didn't do a good job, Susan. So while my media relations piece of my experience really came into play and was valuable mm-hmm. and some of the rainmaking abilities, knowing how to reach out to contacts and, and try to drum up business came into play and was valuable, I was a sucky manager. And a year and nine months after I started, they fired me. And I want to tell you, that sucked. But having said that, I would love to hear from you what advice you have for journalists out there, those maybe who haven't managed, how to pivot from journalism into the public relations world because I didn't have that context and I didn't appreciate just how important it would be. 
Well, I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but it does fit with what I know in hiring journalists and working with journalists in transition. So you're a really, really successful journalist and you are almost in your own work zone. You go out into the world, you report, you bring it together, you hand it over to someone, they put it on the air, they put it in the newspaper. Not collaborative. It's just not collaborative. It's not even meant to be collaborative. When you are a manager, you have to collaborate with many, many people and build that muscle. So I think that people make an easier transition if they've been a manager, but it's not impossible to do if you haven't been a manager. I have several really successful folks on my staff who have been journalists. What they have to do is sort of to step back. This is a really important thing to think about. Journalists know how to flag problems and tell about them. The most important skill, in fact, one of my colleagues, a guy who worked with me for a long time, he actually wrote this and taped it to his computer screen. As a consultant, clients know they got problems. You can't bring a problem to a client without the solution. So you have to learn to think about, yeah, that's a problem. What are you going to do about it? And then you're bringing solutions, which is a little bit more what you do with your manager brain. Like if you were a manager and just told people all the things would be wrong, you'd suck as a manager. So there's a thing about thinking about towards solutions and fixes and collaboration, I think that helps people a lot. And for young journalists making this change, it's being open-minded to how much you really don't know. Like you really don't know this profession. You might think you do, but it turns out there's no way you do. Definitely. And I also think, as I mentioned earlier, that going into the public relations world, I didn't realize how much process there is. And, oh, yeah. It makes me crazy, actually. Right? Still. Ah, too much process. So much process. Things like message testing, right? Like yeah. all right. of this And it's not theory. There actually is, I think, some science behind it and some rationale behind doing all of this. How did you learn on the job? Because you had the management background, you had the journalism experience, but there was process that was new to you. So how did you learn it on the job? Well, here's what I would say. I am blessed to have a couple of partners, and I'm going to name them. Frank Greer, the founding partner of GMB, Jackie Lawling Ebert, who co-leads all of the firm's education work with me, that gave me the guidance, the space to ask really, really stupid questions all the time time. I didn't know what this profession was. Really, I didn't know. And so I had to ask and ask and learn and learn and learn in a way that wasn't obvious to all the people who reported to me because they thought I knew what I was doing, right? So there was a really graceful and supportive team that helped me because I never could have done it on my own. The thing about process, there still is so much process. Sometimes I just want to stand up in a meeting and say, can we just do this because I am really, really built for action. That comes from being a journalist, right? There's a fire. You go and cover it. You do it. You write. You go. But I would say 
some of the process is necessary, super valuable to clients. Because if you would just dive in and do things with clients' money, some of it's not going to work. So you take time to sort of understand a problem together, understand a solution together. And that might be writing a lot of plans before anything happens. As you said, message testing. Do you want to go and spend $100,000 on an advertising campaign and hope that message might work? No, you don't. You want to go and test it to see like, is this resonating with parents? And is this the kind of tool parents need before we spend crazy amounts of money building tools for parents to better help their students? So we want to know, like, is this actually something that's needed or would you do something differently? Can you even understand what we're saying? So I have come to respect a lot of that, even though I'm actually not that patient. So sometimes I have to check myself and say, right, right, right. We're going to think about it. We're going to do it next year when the truth is there are really big pressing problems in education and in public health. And I just like want to go, go, go sometimes when that's probably not the responsible thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. What about how you dealt with turning off that little lever in a journalist's brain, which really does exist, about trying to be objective, trying to be neutral, and not letting your personal opinions influence the product of your writing, of your radio piece, your television piece? How did you move from being objective to working with clients that had some kind of advocacy objective? They wanted to change public policy. And this is GMMB, like MNR is a progressive, a left-leaning firm on the political spectrum. How did you make that switch? Okay, so there's one part of my journalist brain that I've never been able to flip the switch. That's just the way it is. I still listen to NPR every single morning, afternoon, evening, 10 years later. And I edit the stories as I hear them. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Most of your stories I love. They're so fantastic, but I'm still editing in my brain. And I still look around and I see stories everywhere. So to all of my journalist friends that I still send story ideas, it's just my therapy. I have to do it. So I do still send people story ideas all the time. Okay. So the part about being an advocate for For me, it wasn't that hard because of the issues that I work on that I'm really passionate about. You mentioned the Lore Foundation. They are trying to make the quality of life better for people in small towns in the Mountain West. Some of them don't have water. Some of them have too many people and they're overrun and some don't have enough economic development. And so students and public education in this country, the need for early learning, the issues that I work on are easy to be passionate about. I don't feel like I have to be neutral about whether low-income kids in America deserve early learning and an early education and an early start, that's not hard. So I'm helped in that way by things that are perfectly clear to me that they have to happen. Students deserve a better way to get in touch with employers in the case of Handshake, no matter where they live. I like to say that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not evenly distributed in our country. So the work to sort of write the imbalances that we see It's just not very hard for me to do because of the subject matter. I would stop and I would say that I still stop. I feel like 
and think I'm trying to help a client tell their very best story in the way that things will be heard. And that's sometimes the way I think about it is that good storytelling is good storytelling, whether it's on Morning Edition or whether it's Bill and Melinda Gates talking about the need for improvement in K-12 public education. Absolutely. So Susan, I want to flashback to when you were a young Java junkie. You got your Bachelor of Science in newspaper journalism at Syracuse University. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Well, I'm this strange person, my children would tell you, that I wanted to be a reporter since the sixth grade. So I now look back and think, oh, geez, Louise, I was a little narrow-minded, never thought about anything else. (laughs) But I was just like so determined, Andrea, you wouldn't believe it. So yeah, I knew I wanted to be a newspaper reporter and darn it, I was. So I was totally focused on it. It's funny, I was back at Syracuse for graduation this year. My son's best friend and business manager was a graduate. And I looked at the journalism school graduation. He was a journalism graduate. And I think there were only 10 newspaper journalism majors. It used to be like the big major. And so you had to look in the other column, which was multimedia journalism, online journalism, production. I just wanted to say it's changed a lot. But you'll see that in my career, I changed the kind of journalism I did. So I went to NPR, which was broadcast. I don't know anything about broadcast either, by the way, when I made that change, which I made right for my son. So then I did broadcast for a while and then I knew I needed to do another change. So I always knew, I guess when I was in the sixth grade, I knew I wanted to be a writer, capital W, writer, and a very influential high school journalism teacher who I'm in touch with to this day was very influential about pointing me towards journalism. Terrific. What about any extracurriculars that you were involved in while you were at Syracuse or internships or part-time jobs, full-time jobs, whatever, volunteer work that in hindsight proved to be useful when you actually went into the real world? Absolutely. I'm going to go back to high school, Andrea. So I used to write girls' sports stories for the local weekly shopper in a little town outside of Pittsburgh, The Citizen, which exists today. So that might not seem like a big deal. Truthfully, I was following around my friends on the teams and writing stories about them. So that seemed like that was fun. But what happened is those clips that I got when I was in high school were proof that I could write. I worked for the high school newspaper. I used those to get internships when I was in college, those examples. So I kind of was a professional intern. People accused me of this. I worked at both Syracuse newspapers during college. I worked a summer at the Providence Journal. I took a semester off my senior year of college. I was an intern at the Wall Street Journal. And if that wasn't enough, after I graduated from Syracuse, instead of getting a real job, I was an intern at the Washington Post. So all of those things built on each other and built on that experience. Plus, you know what? It turned out to be a good thing to be looking for jobs in the fall 
fall and not in the summer, right? When everybody else was looking. The other thing that was amazing is internships are a little bit like credit. You have to have credit to get credit. You have to have internships to get more internships. When I started my first job at the New Orleans Times-Picayune, God bless them, they counted all of the time that I had been an intern at different places, full time, right, for short times, and counted it toward my starting salary, which was a really important boost at that age. Absolutely. That is fantastic. So internships, (laughs) you want to take away, look for those internships. I also agree that they can be an incredible way for you to hone your craft or at least start honing your craft (laughs) before you end up having a real review where you're getting a salary. And also find mentors, seek them out. People, if you ask them, I've never found anyone unwilling. I was an intern. I don't even know if I mentioned this, gosh, one summer at the Providence Journal in Providence, Rhode Island. And there was a copy editor at the time that every time he edited one of my stories, he'd call me over across the newsroom, pull up a chair next to him and explain every single change he made in my stories. That took my writing from here up, up through the roof. But you have to be open to that feedback. Oh my gosh. And what a generous person. What a generous editor to put, invest that kind of time in a young intern's development. Oh my gosh. I do not do a good enough job with the young people on my staff. And then I think back to Joel, I think back to this guy, I better do a better job just every day. Yeah. The only difference is now you are having to bill clients. So that would make your day a lot But my longer. hair's on fire too many days. Actually, at GMMB, we really do take pride in helping and nurturing and growing our staff. We have partners who started as assistants. It's a really good place to be. And I try to remind the other managers who work for me and everyone that we really do need to strive to spend more time. So just a couple final questions for you, Susan. If you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, maybe it was when you pivoted from journalism into public relations world, maybe it was when you started in journalism, but most importantly, how you persevered, got through that difficult time, and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. I'm happy to do that. And I know I've asked you in advance, like, oh my gosh, we could do the whole podcast about mistakes I've made (laughs) because there's lots of them. You're going to make a lot of them in your life. Here is the good news. Almost everything is fixable. Everything is learn from a bull. If that's a word, it's not. It could be one now. So I'll give you an example. When I was a young journalist, I did a story that was page one of the New Orleans Times-Picayune. I made a math error in this story about campaign finance that made every single number in the story wrong. Every single number in the story was wrong. So the editor was not particularly happy with me. He wasn't as unpleasant as he could have been. What did I do? Well, I got off the phone and I walked out of the office and I cried. That's true. I just own that. And then I had to dig back in, sort out where I messed up, get it all straightened out, own it. You have to own it. You get to help write the correction. And now I am so much more careful about numbers, numbers and stories, data, 
check it, double check it, have somebody else check it a fourth time. You just can't be too sure. I think that was a real jolt for me. Super upsetting. I feel like it knocked me off my game on stories for a while because I just wasn't confident. It took some time to rebuild that confidence. So that's the lesson from that. And one other one that's quick and was on NPR so we could talk about it. When I first got there, I met the director of Morning Edition. I had just gotten there. God knows why they made me the editor of the show. I didn't know any radio. But I sit down and I'm one of my first things is I'm listening to a musical commentary that he had done. And he had been the director of the show for so long. And it was at a time that there was really, really high gas prices. And it was to the tune of a Crosby, Stills and Nash song, but this parody was called like 360 in Ohio because it was high gas prices at the time. It dawned on me that that song was about the killings at Penn State. And I said, maybe this isn't a good song to do a parody of. And he's like, nah, don't worry about it. We do parodies all the time. So I had a red flag. I did not pay attention to my red flag. I just went on. It went on the air. Not a good thing. It was not a good thing to allow to be on the air. It was not respectful. There I was back in that executive producer's office. At least she was understanding, very understanding. Don't do that again, right? That situation. So what do I learn there? And I tell people this all the time. If you have a red flag, you have to pay attention to it. You can't violate that law. I don't in my career ever anymore. If there's a red flag, I better stop and think about it. I should rethink it. I should toss it over. I should talk to other people. People, when you have red flags, pay attention to them. That's what I learned. Oh, fantastic example, Susan. And I think another way of describing your red flag is your gut. Yeah, exactly. What I had a gut, gut that it, maybe that wasn't a good idea. And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. I'm like, okay. Well, that was not a good idea just to pass by something that didn't sit right with me. That's that gut. Definitely. And as you said, these things that happen, these screw-ups are fixable if you pay attention and learn from your mistakes. We all make mistakes. I made a mistake accepting a job at a very senior level with no management experience. I didn't have my little gut telling me, oh, this could be a mistake because I didn't know what I didn't know, Susan. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. But having said that, I don't regret having taken that job because I got to learn while being paid about public relations. It was Mm -hmm. a big fall. I fell flat on my face, but you got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep moving forward, folks. And it's all good so long as you learn from your mistakes. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to Syracuse and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Susan? Okay, these are totally contradictory, but they actually exist alongside each other. I'd have more fun. I worked really hard in college. I was working at newspapers. I got great grades. I was so driven that I think, well... I, maybe I should have had more fun, but I did have fun. I thought I was having fun at the time, but 
the corollary to that is there were a lot of things that if I had to do it over, if I got to go back to school, I would learn more about some really different things, different things in the world, because that's your opportunity to go fishing in every pond. Like maybe I should have learned more about, I don't know, Greek mythology or geology or different things because you won't have that chance in your life as easily to stop out and just drink in and intensely learn new things. You can read books and all of that, but your any university is so full of interesting things to learn that I feel like both that I should have had more fun and I should have learned more things. I'm guessing that one of the reasons you took everything so seriously was that you were a first-generation college student. Absolutely. I did not have the parental supplemental plan when I was in college, so I needed to work. I worked as a journalist. I worked in the library and all that sort of thing. But I wouldn't change that experience at all. In fact, I was talking a little bit this year about being a first gen and what that meant in my family, which it just meant a lot. All of the kids in my family had the opportunity to go to college, which my parents never had, but they had really high expectations for us. And fulfilling that is just really one of the great achievements that I think I've had, bar everything else. No doubt about it. Susan, I want to thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. If any of our listeners want to learn how to break into this really fascinating industry of strategic communications, messaging, media relations, as they relate to building public policy campaigns and issue-oriented communications, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Susan's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Susan, I want to say that your colleagues at GMMB are so fortunate to have such a wise delightful and generous colleague and leader such as yourself. I wish that I'd had the opportunity to work with someone like you when I started out. At, <laughs> it's uh, not too late. We can work together. Well, I think I'm, I'm happy with doing what I'm doing now, you. but I was going to say you. you are just such a lovely person, clearly unbelievably talented and experienced in what you do. I should also mention your clients are so lucky to have someone like you. And I just thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Well, I certainly did too. What a pleasure to connect. And thank you for what you're doing. I feel like you're doing in a big way that work that everybody needs that extra bit of advice, that extra helping hand when they're working and getting into the field of work. So thank you for what you do. I think it's so valuable. I was really excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.